So I don't know what you did this past week, but in the last seven days, I'm going to tell you a few things that Joel and I did at Edinburgh University. I have some pictures to show you. We launched our first Kyle internship program with our very most incredible intern, Brittany, that you met a few minutes ago. Give her a little clap. She's been working really hard this week. Been doing all the, the work that we don't want to do. 25 committed, outstanding Kyle students planned and prayed and grew together in a three-day retreat that we had at the summit. We passed out water and we helped freshman families as they moved in their mini fridges and laptops and bags of shoes. One mini fridge was full of shoes. Hey, however you want to move it. Um, that worked out. We gave out 25 gallons, gallons of free iced coffee at a Club Rush event. We built a ball pit, you see some pictures there, inspired by a Soul Pancake YouTube video, and hundreds of students took a dip in and out of that thing. There are questions on the balls, so they made a friend and started to build community. We hosted a picnic uh, with free food and yard games and music, which over 375 students attended. It was awesome. Yeah. We walked the campus multiple times, and we begged God to help us reach every student on that campus with God's redeeming message. We emailed, texted, and called, and made contact with over 500 students just to tell them about Kyalfa. That's how many contacts we got this week. We launched 12 small groups of students who will open up God's inspired word every week in the buildings of Edinburgh University. 12 small groups will meet every week on that campus, uh, opening up God's word. Isn't that awesome? Like, ah. Uh. And lastly, we gathered together. This is my favorite picture. Last Thursday... And with record-breaking attendance, students literally jumped out of their chairs to worship. I've never seen that happen before. It was amazing. Some of them, a whole new experience than what they've ever understood. But we're praying that they will be hungry to come to know the presence of the living God that we know that was there that night. And it was, it was incredible. I wish you could all have been there just watching what was happening. And why did we do this? Why, why did we do all this in the last seven days? That was a lot in seven days, y'all. I need a little nap, I think. <laughs> it was great, but it was a lot. And we did it because the mission of God is that he would have his people be his family. That's God's mission. Hundreds of times in the Bible, God says it with this to various people groups. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And God says this to people who are rebellious, people who are sinful, people who are self-righteous, people who are religious. It, it's, like, it's like a father getting down on one knee to a bunch of kids. Kids who don't have a, have a dad. Kids who don't really want a dad. Kids who don't really want to obey their dad. And he looks at them with a smile on his face and love in his heart and he says, I'm going to be your dad. and You're going to be my kids kind of whether you like it or not, you know? Like, we're going to do this together. And that is the father heart of God. That's the mission of God. That he would adopt into his family a bunch of rebellious kids and that he would love them and he would change their heart through his love and they would grow to love him and they would grow to love what he loves. And being on this mission with God is really having a father's heart and, and going to work with your dad, and saying our mission is to love who he loves, to serve who he serves, to pursue who he is pursuing, as he has pursued me and as he has pursued you. 
I want to start this morning. Um, God has been pursuing my, my sweet friend, Patrika, and I want you to just hear a little bit about her story. So would you give her a round of applause? It's intimidating to come up here, but she's going to come share with you. <laughs> you're you're going to be great. So um, Patrika, tell us just a little bit about what it was like for you growing up, kind of your story, what challenges you faced and stuff. Okay, well, I grew up in Brooklyn. I didn't grow up there, actually. I was just born there. But um, I grew up in a single-parent household with my mom and my grandma. And I moved to a little town about an hour south of here, Sandy Lake, Pennsylvania. If any of y'all know it, it's really little. Um, oh, my goodness, I'm so nervous. That's okay. Um, <laughs> and I was the only person in my entire school who wasn't white. So that was definitely something that I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> in second grade, this kid called me a racial slur, and I came home, and I told my mom, and I was like, Mom, this person said something, and she was like, why, like, she just got so angry, and I was like, Mom, why are you so mad, and she's like, Patrika, it's because you're, like, it's because you're not white, that's why they said that, and I was like, what, <laughs> what, what are you talking about, I'm, what, that was a rough time, I cried for six hours, but other than that, it was good, um, I moved to Grove City whenever I was in sixth grade. Didn't really have any friends, so I just kind of jumped into the first friend group that let me in. Probably made some bad decisions with that one. Yeah. It's okay. Good. Um, so tell us about, you kind of said that that friend group wasn't the best influence, some of the things that they kind of led you into at a really young age. Um, what, what got you to the point where you sort of had like that rock bottom moment? Well, I went to a party as a 14-year-old. Terrible decision. Um, and something happened to the point where I was like, I can't fix this. Like, this happened. It can't be fixed. Like, how, how do I come up from here? Like, this isn't, like, I didn't know what to do. And I just kept going on the path that I was going. Just, woo, steady downfall. And my junior year, I was at like rock bottom, rock bottom. And I Googled the fastest way to kill yourself and the least messy. I wrote a suicide note. I waited till my mom and grandma left and I took a knife and stabbed it into trying to hit a vein on right there on the inside of my leg. And I sat in the bathtub and waited for just the process to happen. My mom came home and I was sitting in a bathtub of water and my own blood. And I rem I, that's the last thing I remember until I woke up in the hospital and my grandma was holding my hand, crying her eyes out, asking like that I would never do it again. And I've always had God like as a part of my life, but like I've always been that person that's like, yeah, I'm fine, like I'm good. Like I understand the Bible, I know God died for me. But at that moment I was just like, if I'm not living for something else, I'm at least gonna live for my grandma. Because it hurt me so much to see her like that. Mm -hmm. And so then um, you went to college. Tell yeah. us about that process. I went to how college. You got to and my dream school was Mount Vernon Nazarene University. S week before, I had a $6,000 loan revoked. So I went and applied to Clarion, Slippery Rock, and Edinburgh. And I was like, whoever calls me back first is where I'm going to go. Obviously, I wound up at Edinburgh. And whenever I went to Edinburgh, I had no intentions of changing anything. Like, because I was still partying. I was still making all these bad decisions. And I just had no, didn't want to change. 
Then I was playing Foursquare with my friends, and this is actually really funny. I was playing Foursquare with my friends, and this kid walked by, this little kid named TJ. And by little, I just mean he's like this tall. Y'all met him earlier. He was standing up here, he greeted you. And he was like, hey, how are you guys? And we like asked him if he wanted to play Foursquare, and he was like, oh no, I'm gonna go practice piano for worship for worship band. And I was like, oh, what are you playing? And he's like, how he loves us. And I was like, oh my goodness, I love that song. And he was like, yeah, I'm playing it, Kai Off, playing it for Kai Alpha. Like, you should come. He invited me to Kai Alpha. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Never went. Didn't go. Um, he kept inviting me week after week and was like, you should come to Kai Alpha. And somehow, only by the grace of God, I don't really know how it happened. I just wound up at Kai Alpha. And I was like, wow, this is great. Like, fantastic. It was a community. It was a bunch of people who loved God and, like, Walking into that building was just something that I hope everyone gets to feel. It was just like God's overwhelming like love and presence. Oh my goodness, it was great. Mm. Well, tell us now kind of what life is like. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, for that. Um, what's life like now for you? Uh, well, I am now on the leadership team for Chi Alpha, which is awesome and I was really hesitant about it at first, but I was like, I'm going to pray about this, like for real, pray about it. And I was like, versus for fake, pray yeah. about it. But, you know. <laughs> true, true. It works. And I'm on the leadership team and I love it. And I'm just so, so happy to see what God's going to do on Edinburgh campus. Yes. And honestly, people like whenever I was like younger and like made all those terrible decisions, I was like, oh my goodness, it'd be so hard to love God for real. I would have to go to church, I would have to read, I would have to pray. I wouldn't be able to do this, I wouldn't be able to do this. And since then, like, since I decided that I wanted to follow God for real, life is so much easier. Like everything I was concerned about, I'm like, eh, it's okay, I'm good. I got prayer, that's all I need. <laughs> Thank you. You wanna say anything else? You did so good. Give this to Josh. I don't have to highlight for you much of where God was working in Patrika's story. I hope you could hear it as you saw, but thank you, God, that that didn't work, right? That she is here today and standing here and serving, serving the God of the universe who has given her a purpose and a plan. And I pray often that students like Patrika that are coming to campus, Edinburgh wasn't an accident. It wasn't the first school that let her in. God chose that for her because he knew that that was where she was going to find community and fellowship. Do you see that? He's purposeful, you know, and he is fighting for his children. And so I pray often that people like Patrika, that will find them on campus and that that story can be repeated and repeated and repeated because God is pursuing them and God is after them. Um, an ecotone is, is this transition area between two adjacent ecological communities. It's, it's where ocean meets the sand. It's where the forest meets the meadow. It's, it's, it's where two ecological communities meet together. And along the ecotone, biologists say, new life springs up at the point where two cultures come together. Eco comes from the word ecology, and tone comes from the Greek word tonos, which means tension. Something new is born out of tension, which would not exist without it. 
In fact, if different species can survive in both communities of the two biomes, then the ecotone is considered to have species richness. Biologists measure this when studying the food chain and the success of organisms. It is this space where you are neither home nor are you on your turf, where, where we are neither insiders nor outsiders, where new possibilities exist, where tension is allowed. Awkward, awkward moments, that place where you don't feel the most comfortable. And the last seven days, we saw a transvestite student on campus dancing by himself or herself, I'm not sure. And we invited him to the ball pit and he jumped in and made a friend. And we lived in the ecotone. We lived in that tension. The entire ultimate Frisbee team showed up to our picnic at five o'clock, questionably intoxicated. I'm not sure, we weren't sure. Two cultures came together and life sprung up in that moment. I introduced myself to a student after I invited him to Chi Alpha as I, we were walking by the booth and he asked me if I was a pastor and I said yes. And he said he was too. And I said, oh, of what? And he said, I'm a priest. I'm a priest of Wicca. And I said, well, you ought to come to Kyle and see what I do. And he said, I think I will. And something new was born out of that tension that wouldn't have existed before. Choosing to live in the transition areas of life is difficult. Choosing to kind of resist the extremes and occupy that place where new life might spring up is unpredictable. It's risky. In, in fact, it's, it's that place that you have to just kind of learn to live with the tension, that, that beautiful tension. When Jesus sat down at the well with that Samaritan woman, that place became an ecotone. There was tension there amidst them. When Rosa Parks sat down on a bus all those years ago, that place became an ecotone. When a 20-year-old young adult walked into an elementary school in Alabama two weeks ago with 500 rounds of ammunition in his backpack and a school secretary looked him in the eyes and said to him, I don't know you, but I love you because my God loves you. That mentally ill man put down his guns, laid on the ground, and surrendered to police. Did you read about that? There was tension and new life sprung up in that ecotone. When my mother-in-law, who works in a public school, sits down with an eighth grader who has emotionally and mentally abused and helps him understand math, that place becomes an ecotone. And when you as a parent, exhausted at the end of the day, sit down and you love one of your kids who hasn't listened to you, that place becomes an ecotone. It, it is this moment where there could be a burst of life where two people have to sit in the tension and just say, okay, there's this, there's this new place where I'm going to listen, I'm going to learn, I'm going to engage, and I'm going to contribute, and I have no idea what to say to you because you're a priest of Wicca, and I don't even get that, but I'm going to stand here with you because I want new life to spring up, and I want redemptive beauty in the tension. Does that make sense? God is asking us to live there. We don't naturally take risks or seek tension, so we have to actually move toward it. It, it is so counterintuitive. It is so unnatural that we actually have to make choices to do it. We have to do it on purpose because we don't want to deal with the mess of life. Ah, I don't want to deal with those things that I don't know how to deal with. Well, what would I say to someone that, what would I say to a transvestite? I don't know. I'm going to go this way. 
Just because we don't want to do something doesn't mean we shouldn't. Just because we don't want to do something doesn't mean we shouldn't. Each person's story is written in risks. The ones taken and the ones avoided. In Exodus 3, Moses is tending flock, and he's going about his ordinary day and his ordinary life, and he comes near this mountain called Mount Horeb, which is the notorious mountain of God. Everyone knows this is the mountain of God. And I'm going to read to you um, Exodus 3, verses 2 through 5. You're probably familiar with this story, but this is what happens. There the angel of the Lord appears to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought... I love this. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight. (laughs) Why the bush did not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. So there was the first test. He went over to see what was going to happen. When the Lord saw he'd gone over to look, God called him from within that bush. And he said, Moses, 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 here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I think today, if I had the chance to call Moses up on the altar and interview him, that Moses might say that the greatest moment in his walk with God came at that burning bush because that was the day he moved from safety to risk. That was the day he entered the tension. That was the day he accepted the call. Moses overcame the comforts of his present. The life of an ordinary herdsman wasn't satisfying anymore. And he experienced the tension and the ecotone, and he accepted the mission. Growth begins when we leave the comfort. And I want you to think today, what does that mean for you? Where is that ecotone that God wants you to enter Who is it that will be waiting there, desperate for the message of redemption, like Patrika? Who who is it? Who is waiting there for you to go and, and take the risk to get there? For 40 years, Moses benefited from everything Egypt had to offer. But only after he left Egypt for the first time did he begin to learn what was really important. And when we choose not to enter the tension, if Moses would have ignored the bush... It robs us of our greatest moments and memories. Many people are so afraid of risk that they spend their entire lives in Egypt. Pastor Don talked about this a few weeks ago in a prayer. We stay in the land of not enough. But God wants us in the promised land, the land of more than enough. Of more than enough. And the way that we defeat tomorrow's regret is by moving forward, by jumping feet first into the tension. Okay, so now I've talked you into jumping into the tension, whatever that means for you. So when you're in it, I think we got to think about two things. We have to choose when to contend and when to contextualize. When to contend and when to contextualize. Let me read to you uh, Jude 1, verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So that word contending comes from Jude 3, where the Bible commands us to contend for our faith or to fight, right? To fight for our faith. There is this core of Christian beliefs that all Christians everywhere, this is what makes you a Christian, regardless of culture, regardless of time, believe. These are the the deal breakers, the have-tos, the main things. If you don't believe these, you're probably not a Christian, okay? These are the things. And they are that there's one God, 
in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? This is where I need Gary to give me amens. We were sinners. We were sinners by nature. We were sinners by choice. But God came on a rescue mission in person and in the work of Jesus. That's right. And he was born of a virgin. And he lived without sin. And he died on a cross in our place for our sins as our substitute. And he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And he's conquered sin and Satan and death and hell and the wrath of God. And he's ascended into heaven where he's ruling and reigning as Lord. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Those things are true. Am I right? Are we together on this? Okay. Let's fight for that. Let's contend for that. Those are the truths that will set us free. And this culture and generation are hungry for truth that never fails. When so many things are changing and wavering, they respect the fact that these beliefs are constant and true. Now hear me say this. There are countless things that we can fight against. Countless. But the true prophetic voice that this culture needs is rooted within something deep and strong and true. And that is the essence and the spirit of Jesus. It is not enough to simply be against things. We can list off all the things we don't agree with. We can protest and fight and lodge complaints and lecture and judge. And I could have stand in front of that transvestite and I could have told him why I thought all the things that he was doing was wrong. But first, 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 you know what I want him to know? I want to be very clear about the things that I'm fighting for. And the things I'm fighting for are the things that I just told you. That Jesus came on a rescue mission. And he's going to, he died and he rose again and he's going to judge living in the dead. And he did it for him. And there's beauty in that tension. Now in the tension, we also find a need to contextualize. And, and this comes out of 1 Corinthians 9. What a missionary always does when a missionary goes into a culture is they try to figure it out, right? So who's here? What do they think? What do they wear? What do they eat? How do they act? Our answers include ball pits, iced coffee, apple products, and tattoos. Okay, that's, that's basically the answer to all of it. So for you and I, contextualization is asking, what would it look like if Jesus came to my office? What would it look like if Jesus came to my school that I work at? What about to my apartment? What about to my cul-de-sac? What would it look like? What would Jesus do first? What is it that he would fight for? How would he love the people there? And how would he try to uh, not impose Christianity on them, but to propose Christianity to everyone? What would that look like? And in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says, I've become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save as many as possible. And I do so for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in my blessings. And Paul says, I want to reach everybody and I'll do whatever I can. I'll be flexible in my methods. I'll fight for things before I fight against them. I will find the ecotone and I'll live there as uncomfortable as it is, but I'll find beauty in the tension. N.T. Wright, um, pastor got me, started reading on him. He always quotes him. He wrote this. If someone were to say, what must I do to be saved? N.T. Wright says, I'd be inclined to say, are we talking about rescuing your mortgage or your marriage or your eternal salvation or what? Because people have layer upon layer upon layer of things to be saved from. And we can deal with all of them, but we have to find where the shoe pinches for them. And then that's the point of entry into an authentic grounding of the gospel and their reality. 
I love how he says the gospel in their reality. You can't start at a point with someone where God isn't working in them. You may know their struggle. You may think you understand why they're having such a hard time. But you need to live in that tension until God tells you what to do next. Over the summer, um, I was praying for some friends um, who are trying to love Jesus. They, 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 are, they are really trying, but they are caught in a sin issue that is complicated and difficult. A sin issue that culture makes very cloudy. And I have watched and walked with them as many believers in Jesus have shared their very wise and perfectly correct opinions with them about their decisions. And then I've hugged them. And I've wiped their tears away after those Christians left because of the pain that they hurt and felt in their words. And I was reading in Matthew 23, and it says this, Then Jesus, Jesus, said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And my heart was so deeply struck and I just said, God, where am I tying up heavy loads and, and putting, weighing people down in my legalism and in my expectation? Yeah, I'm not willing to lift a finger to help them. Especially if we don't agree with their struggle. They should just figure it out. Figure it out. I don't want to deal with the mess. I don't want to deal with the tension. Just figure it out out there. And then when you get in here, we can be friends. Oh, that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, he's saying, if you do that, don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. In all of Jesus' preaching, in all of it, he came down the hardest. And you want to know who? The Pharisees. Because nothing, nothing, nothing is more opposite to the spirit of the gospel than pride and judgmentalism under the pretense of religion. Nothing. And so Jesus says none of that. You know, most of the time, Christianity is presented as this. You sinners need to repent. And then, like, all the religious people are like, yeah, we're better than you. All right. So you repent. I'm going to go over here to church. That was supposed to be funny. Come on. <laughs> all right. Here's the truth. Sin is an enemy of Jesus. But so is the spirit of religion. And sin tends to be visible. We can see it. You know, you can tell. You can, you can smell it on their breath. You can, you can watch their mistakes happen. But I'll tell you what, religion tends to be invisible because it lives in the heart and in the mind and in the motives. And it can be worse. It can kill us quicker. Before Paul became a Christian, he was a sinner. He did all kinds of terrible things on the outside. But you know what his real problem was? Religion. Sometimes we forget that. But he says in his text in 1 Corinthians, I was a Pharisee. That's the strictest of the strict. He said, I studied under this leading rabbi named Gamamiel, which reminds me of like the Smurf guy, if you've ever seen that. But he went to the best theological school. All right, Paul probably memorized entire books of the Old Testament in Hebrew. But here's what he says, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, you know what? Here's my problem. I was religious. 
I was so religious that I was judging people and condemning people and opposing people and hurting people that I wasn't like Jesus at all. And when we live in that tension, when we, when we put ourselves in those moments, we, we trip sometimes on our own religious views. And that's okay. I've been there before. And that will happen to us. But we have to repent of that too. Of that spirit of religion, of that, of that judgment. God never, ever told us we were supposed to be the moral authority. He was. He is. We are supposed to contend for the things that we know and that we know to be true. There is no room in the kingdom of God for religious haughtiness. There is no room for self-righteousness, for boastfulness. There is no room for keeping record of wrongs or for comparing ourselves so we end up better than others. This, <laughs> thanks. Mr. Newberry, I didn't plan. This week over lunch um, at Torero's, of course, if you know the staff, that's the only place they ever go. And um, we were talking, you know, we talk about fantasy football and pizza and the construction on Peach Street. And sometimes we talk about spiritual stuff. It's peppered in there every once in a while. And we were discussing how it is very difficult to have an accurate view of God's grace. It's very difficult. Because we tend to reduce it. We tend to dilute it. It sometimes feels like God is very, very far away, and you're just supposed to try really, really hard. And when you fail, God is disappointed, and he'll judge you, but Jesus will forgive you because he knows how pathetic you are, right? That's just sometimes how grace feels. That's not very motivating. It's like God saying, um, okay, run through that wall, not the door part, okay, the actual wall, I know you can't, but when you fall down, I'll tell you that I forgive you for being pathetic and now get up and run again. That's what that feels like he's saying. And like, really, that's my life? Like, do I get a helmet? <laughs> you know, like, can I take a day off? Do I get a glass of water? Um, this is a really difficult job description. Will I ever get through that wall? Nope. What if I stop trying to get through the wall? Well, then, you know, you, you'll go to hell. You stop being a Christian. Okay. This is hashtag lame. Okay, this is really unfair. Like, this is not fair how this is happening. Here's the truth. God's grace does forgive you when you fail. It operates like that. I think many of you know that. The part of God's grace that we dilute is God's grace empowering you to be who you cannot be, to do what you cannot do by a power that you do not possess. God's grace doesn't just pick you up when you fall. It keeps you strong so that you don't have to fall. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. It's like he's saying, you know, I got a lot done and I worked harder than everyone and my life has really counted and it's made a significant difference. But by the grace of God, the strengthening, empowering, gifting grace of God, I did do these things, but I boast in who Jesus is because he allowed me to do it. The grace of God doesn't just empower us to be a better person. It empowers us to be a new person. A new person. God's grace is there to forgive us when we fail, but it, it's there before we fail. To change our heart, to change our mind, to change our desires, to reorient our course of life, to make us a different person, and to give us meaning and value and purpose and pleasure. Jesus is with you. Jesus is in you. Jesus is for you. And if you do fail, Jesus will forgive you. But because Jesus is with you, you don't have to say yes to sin. You could say yes to Jesus. You don't have to say yes to condemnation and guilt and shame and waking up and thinking, is there any hope for me? 
There is hope for you. And it's not in you, but it's for you in Christ and in the grace of God. So as believers in Jesus, we live in this tension, we live in this ecotone, and and we're contending and we're contextualizing and we're figuring out how it is that we can best explain the gospel and the, the, the things that we need to fight for to other people. And in all that, because of the grace of God, we have to model brokenness instead of perfection. We have to model brokenness instead of perfection. Modeling brokenness is being humble. It's, it's asking for forgiveness. It's, it's not giving up when it's easy and not running away because our expectations aren't met. We don't want to be known on campus, Chi Alpha, as a church full of perfect people. We don't want to be known at Erie First as a church full of perfect people. We couldn't. But we want to be known as a church full of broken people. A church full of broken people because God just doesn't make us better. God makes us new. God makes us new. He makes us able. To end today, I just want to um, ask one more Kafa student. Would you welcome him? This is Josh. Um, he's going to share with you quickly about uh, the community of Kafa and this community of broken people and how he found healing within it. And he has notes. Josh, good job. <laughs> what Nicole is saying is truth, right? Amen. I've had this dream that at some point I want to talk in front of a Southern Gospel Church and have everybody just be like, amen, to everything I say. <laughs> just Gary. And we got one Gary's guy over right. here. So can I have an amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. So we got that out of the way. I'm nervous. You guys are awake now. You're nervous because I'm a wild card. You don't know what's going to happen. So. I, I also don't know. So that works out well. <laughs> I wrote this last night and this morning. No, I'm kidding. Um. <laughs> Thank you, Joel and Nicole, for letting me speak. Thank you, church, especially Nicole, for pushing me to speak. Um, Thank you to my dad, um, Dorothy, Allie, Joey, Dylan, for letting me speak this a couple times to them. Uh, Thank you to Dr. Benson for my teeth. Like, he did a good job, except for the little gap. Besides that, it's fine. Uh, Hair care by Lynn. I don't know. I just used a towel this morning. There's no gel. Um... wild card. (laughs) I'm here today to walk you guys through my life to this point, and and I'm hoping through that that walk you guys will see why community and why a group of broken people is so important to me. I grew up in a Christian family. I'm the oldest of five. Uh, I went to the Federated Church, which is a church just like this, and we had a core group of like nine families that were all together, all these kids the same age. We all hung out. That was the first time I had like a real solid like family community of people. And uh, I was homeschooled, so homeschoolers. Those are the homeschoolers yes. like, hi, I'm homeschooled. <laughs> Social situations. Um, they're hard. Um, and, um, and my life was set, right? Like, that sounds good. When I was uh, in seventh grade, my parents got divorced, and I didn't see it coming. Uh, no one really did. And for the first time, that perfect life that, that I thought I had was, was gone. And um, during that situation, everybody in my family hurt. I'm not saying one person hurt more than the other. But my little brother, he went through a depression, and uh, 
we're going to talk about my depression a little bit, but this was the first time I ever saw depression or even kind of got what it was. And for two months, he shut down. And he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to talk. He didn't want to do anything. I'm his brother. We play together all the time, and he didn't want anything of me. And instead of being comforting, compassionate, I was angry at him because of the fact that it was so selfish that he was sad that my parents had separated. Eventually, he got out of it. Um, we got back into the situation. I went to Gerard Alliance Christian Academy, so small Christian schools. Woo! I played against you guys in the gym down there, so I think we won. So, <laughs> um, no, you guys beat us more than we beat you. Um, and and I and I was blessed to be a part of then that community. I had a Christian basketball coach. All my teachers were Christian, and I got back into a community. I got more, more involved in my church. I was in choir. We did service projects. And I was in a community again. And these are like peers my age. They're adults. These people are like building around me. And I had all this. And then I graduated high school. I commuted to college. It was about a 45, 50-minute drive every day. And I left all of that. I didn't play sports anymore, so that community was gone. I didn't see my family that much because I was commuting and working. I didn't go to church as often because I was so busy doing homework and working to pay for gas to drive 50 minutes, which was ridiculous. And, and I stooped into a depression. Um, I was going in as a psychology major, and I uh, actually, by the end of my uh, freshman first semester, I diagnosed myself with depression. And before you guys are like, whoa, just, I, I did go to psychologists. I went to a couple, and they were right there with me and said, yeah, you were, you were depressed. And if you guys see me now, do I look like a depressed person? N no. I, I mean, you guys, yeah, he does. But um, <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not a depressed. But, like, can you see that? Like, someone that had that, that group, and then I went out of it, and I was gone. All that building up that I had was no longer there. 23% of college students feel comfortable telling someone that they're sad or depressed. 23%. That leaves, like, I don't know, Matt, like about 80% um, <laughs> of people that won't tell anyone that they're depressed. And 57% feel hopeless. And Freudian psychologists say that hopelessness is a direct link to depression. So that's like 50% of the people that are at college are going through something that I was going through. And I didn't know this. It's all alone. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says, And let us consider how to serve one another to love good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more to see the day drawing near. When the early church started, they were alone. It was them and the other three guys in their town that believed in Jesus. That was it. There wasn't anybody else. And all the college students here, or if you were in college and you went through that, you know as soon as you step on the campus, you're the only one. Or at least you think you are. That's what I thought. That's how I felt. In John 13, 35, it says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It wasn't until I got into Chi Alpha, I met Joel and Nicole, and they, 
they, they threw me right in there. They put me on sound because if I was up front, I'd be running around. They put me in the back so no one could see me. Um, and, but there I felt love. College students, when they, they look for community when they, go, when they go onto a campus, there's parties, there's sports, there's clubs, fraternities, sororities, and then there's Chi Alpha. That doesn't usually make the cut. I feel like the, the number one coolest thing to be at, but I think it is. We have the opportunity when we walk onto a campus to change ourselves. Every, every high school student that graduates and goes to college, you can reinvent yourself. You have the opportunity to change. Mine, unfortunately, was in a negative way at first, but as I got back into the community, I was able to rebuild myself in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, the body is a unit, and though it is made up of many parts, and though the parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about Roman battle strategy, because most of you guys probably don't want that, but if you teach middle school boys, you'll love this analogy. So um, if you guys have seen 300, that might work too. I don't condone that movie, so that's, that's just me. But I'm talking about the phalanx. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with what that is, it's a term when a line of Ro Roman soldiers would line up and they would have shields that are about maybe four by three feet, all right? So that'll protect you. But what they figured out is if you line them up in a scale pattern where it would protect you and the person to your left, all the way down the line, all of a sudden, anyone that attacked them wouldn't hit just one guy. They'd hit the whole row. And you're not going to knock down a whole row of the greatest military force at that time. The phalanx. In the same way, Chi Alpha has that sort of phalanx. I know I've got TJ, I've got Joel, I've got Dylan, I've got Lucas, I've got Brennan. These guys are on this side of me and on this side of me. And anything that comes to hit me is going to fall over. I'm protected because I've surrounded myself with fellow broken people. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Together, as we are that line, we build each other up. We make each other bigger, better people. Today, uh, the community of Kaiafa has helped me fight through my depression. It's still a struggle, but it keeps me strong. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Give Josh a round of applause. He's hilarious. We appreciate you. There is beauty in the redemptive tension. That's what I, that's what I came here to tell you today. Let's find the ecotones in our lives, and let's camp there until new life springs up, until hope is found. Until people like Josh can say, hey, I found some people to help me fight through this battle that I've got going on. And, and Patrika can say, I, I once thought there was nothing to live for. And now I just see there's so much, not just me, but for all of these people that need to hear this message of who Jesus is, these things that I'm going to contend for. So um, if you would, would you stand up? I don't know if that'll throw the ushers off, but 
I believe in you guys. You can do it all at the same time. And I would just like to pray for you today. Jesus, I thank you for these men and women in this room. And God, I thank you that um, even them being here shows that, Lord, they want to understand and know more of who you are. And God, I pray as we live in these tension moments, God, as we, as we bring some risk into our lives and we step as Moses did, we, we check out the burning bush, we go from the safety to the risk. Father, I ask that you would just show us, God, give us the courage to do that. And Lord, when we feel awkward and, and uncomfortable and, and in tension, God, I pray that we would resist the urge to be judgmental or to, to tie heavy burdens upon people's lives with our expectations. But God, that we could just trust you and love you and ask you for the words to say and the actions to give. And, and God, I, I pray that there would be beauty in those tension moments and we could find that, that, that redemption in those, those moments of awkwardness and, and those times that we place our, our, own, uh, our own safety and our own um, things that we want on the altar. God, I love you. I thank you. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing at Edinburgh University. I thank you for what you're doing with your young adults and, and in other, other even ministries in this, in this church community. And I ask God for, for more of you, not, not to live in the land of not enough, but to live in that land of more than enough. God, we trust you, we thank you, and we love you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.